hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Theme Warriors. I'm Mike, and returning cast with us, it's Venom. We'll start out with, how are you doing, Venom? Greetings and salutations, Warriors. Yes, a very long time coming. Very glad to be back and to be working with you three again. Not so much Mike, since I'm sick of him, but yeah, everybody else I'm looking really forward to working with again. Alright, and joining as well coming back after the long hiatus it's doug tilly how are you doing doug mike i'm doing so well i mean i guess uh it's hard to dance around the fact that in between the almost two years since our last episode that there's been a lot of changes in the world uh some uh i would say some good but mostly a lot's not good uh but uh, i'm glad that we can come back together get some positivity happening in the year 2021 yeah i mean it's like theme warriors we're, we're coming back i guess when there's like a tad bit of light at the end of the tunnel but that still remains to be seen um lots can still go wrong and i'm sure many things will but we're back so i guess that changes everything right <laughs> we got one good thing out of covid theme warriors is back yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is the world ready um, the world definitely is ready, though, uh, for Iris. Iris, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming back with us as well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty awesome. I'm, you know, just happy that we are on 2021 and new things are... There has been a lot of changes and I am looking forward to them. Yeah, and before we start a recording... Um, I believe, Doug, you pointed out we haven't recorded since, what, August 2019, was it? Yeah, yeah August 2019. And we recorded, I think, a little bit earlier than that. But yeah, it's uh, what a gap. Huh? I think this might be the longest stretch uh, in between uh, podcasts that uh, I've ever been a part of. And it is thematically appropriate, Michael, for today's episode. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, we're pretty much coming back with zero changes to anything. Like... <laughs> <laughs> same cast, same idea behind the show. Uh, we and from what I remember, we actually had our next episode planned fairly at, at like a normal time, and just things happened. It got pushed back, and then that turned into like an extended hiatus. Turned into I don't know if the show's coming back because we all had other stuff we were doing. And um, enough time went by where I was thinking in my head, I was like, well. I really didn't want to end the show. It just circumstances kind of put it on the back burner and man, life happens. And before you know it, like all that time had gone by and uh, I was like, well, let me just reach out to everyone and see if there's any interest level in bringing it back. And everyone seemed pretty receptive. Uh, I know for me and Venom specifically, this is like our one show where we mainly get a chance to talk about non-horror so it's kind of nice to have this one out there for that purpose. Um, not to not to say, you know, obviously horror movies do show up, which <laughs> on this episode will happen. Um, but uh, it's not horror exclusive. So it kind of helps us break out of the uh, horror uh, exclusive shell that we're mostly in on all of our other shows. But um, I think, man, it's been so much time. I think it's usually... 
Doug, I could get to to ask what our theme is for this episode. So, Doug, um, if you don't uh, have any objections, would you tell the listeners what our theme is this month? I mean, my guy always has some objections, but I think I'll tell people anyway. <laughs> As I suggested, yeah, it's very thematically appropriate. We're talking about movies where the sequel uh, happened much uh, uh, later than the original. I guess all sequels do later than the original. But what it is is the largest gaps between sequels uh, in movies. Yes. Yes, that is our theme of this episode. And like Doug said, it's very kind of appropriate for a show returning from a long hiatus. Um. With the with uh, all the same stars, not <laughs> returning to the show, but we will. I guess we'll get right into our movies. Um, and chronological order is usually how we do it. No reason to change it up this time. So our first movie is, I believe, the one I picked. And nope. uh, no, it's actually not. You're right. I, I, the complete opposite. I my tabs in the wrong order. Venom, you picked this one, correct? Yes, sir. That is mine. Um, apparently, I can't Venom, the guy that, 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 Yeah, I was going to say, the, the guy who is happy to do the non-horror show went right to uh, horror, so <laughs> take it well, away. Can you ask me trivia questions about movies, you know, general movies? I'm always going to think about horror first because that's the history I have in my head. You know, you know, I'm not, I'm not an aficionado of action movies or comedies or anything like that. Horror is my thing. So when you give me a theme, obviously horror is going to be the first thing that pops in because it's what I'm familiar with the most. And yes, I decided to go ahead and pick a horror film. Um, This is actually a film that I did not enjoy when I saw it in theaters. I did get to see this in theaters during its first run, and I did not enjoy it. And this uh, movie is 23 years in the making as far as uh, the time between the original and the sequel. And of course, I am talking about Richard Franklin's Psycho 2, the sequel to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. It is now 1983. Norman Bates has been safely locked up in a mental institution for the last 22, 23 years, and he is now a free man. He is convinced the powers that be that he is not a danger to society anymore and that he can, you know, live amongst us normals. (laughs) Us normals. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I saw this in theaters on the, probably not opening weekend, but right around, uh, you know, the first couple of weeks of its release. And I just remember walking out thinking it just didn't feel like Psycho. Now, obviously, you know, as years have gone by and my kind of podcaster eyes have gotten a little bit more advanced, I see the value in this film, uh, especially over the last five to ten years. It seems to be making a big comeback. I'm seeing a lot of younger horror movie podcasters discussing not just Psycho 2, but the entire Psycho franchise. So just to see something that was kind of maybe not given the attention that it deserved when it first came out, now getting a little bit more cult status is really, really nice to see. Um, so like I said, I'm not a big fan when it first came out, but of course, you know, I am now a huge fan. Um, it, it's a movie that works really well for me. It's a movie that... 
is it was able to do something for Norman Bates that I didn't think possible after the events of the first one. And, you know, seeing that he was very solidly a villain, we come back to Psycho 2 and they actually make him a sympathetic character, which is kind of shocking. You never thought you'd see Norman Bates as almost like the protagonist of the film, which he basically is for the majority of this film. Um, but, you know, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and bring in uh, some other folks to talk about their experience with Psycho and Psycho 2. Uh, let's go ahead and start. Ladies first, of course. Iris, talk to me about Psycho 2. Oh, right. Psycho 2. So I, like you, um, also saw this in the movie theater. And I also walked away going, what the heck was that? Uh, being uh, a young moviegoer i was i believe probably 17 at the time i was like well you know it, it just didn't have that cycle feel it didn't have that um it didn't create that uh suspenseful atmosphere for me like the other one did right and i was like you know norman bates is supposed to be the bad guy and i think i just didn't like how he became the victim instead of being the victimizer so I kind of walked away with not much love for it. But I have watched the movie several times uh, since then. And the more and more I watched it, the more and more I like how they have taken his character and created kind of like, uh, you know, he's been away for a while. He he has been trying to rehabilitate. And how fucked up would it was what they were doing to him because they, you know... Uh, I think it was like Mary and um, Lila just didn't like him. They didn't want him out there because they thought he was, uh, you know, a threat. And of course, you know, Mary and Crane's dead. It's Lila's sister. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it's always been some it, it's grown on me, I guess, is basically what I'm trying to say. Excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Same with me. And I totally forgot to give a little bit of a description of the film. Obviously, I talked about Norman being released 22 years later, but of course, um, some of the basics of the story, um, Lila Crane Loomis, who went ahead and married Sam Loomis after the events of the original Psycho, is now back. She has a, uh, a daughter named Mary that she's kind of in cahoots trying to basically convince uh, the local law enforcement that Norman should never have been released and that he's still a danger. So, of course, you know, the murders around the uh, Bates Motel, you know, start up again. And, of course, Norman is the first suspect. But um, and, and then there's some, you know, there's little plot devices here and there, maybe a little bit of a double cross between our two antagonists in the film. I won't give away too much in case you haven't seen it. But, yeah, that, that's your basic story for Psycho 2. Um, anything else, Iris? I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. It, it's fine. And um, not that I want to give I don't want to give away the ending, but the ending, the more and more I see this movie, the more and more it works for me, because I think. That's exactly where it needed to go for all of this, uh, for the whole plot of the movie, the whole script to be tied up nicely in a bow and set forth, you know, kind of presented to you in a way that, you know, it ties up the story. But there might be something else coming along, you know. So, yeah, I, like I said, as it's kind of like a like you know a bourbon, it has to grow on you. you. You can't just sip it the first time and go, oh, this is great. You have to get you have to get accustomed to it. You have to 
you know, this the slow love begins and you get the more and more you watch it, the more and more you can go like, yeah, you know, this, this, this makes sense. I like the movie. The characters are developed well. Um, you know, Lila and uh, Mary, you know, they do come in. But if you have if you've watched Psycho and I don't think too many people haven't, you do understand that dynamic and why they are doing this. So for me, it, it works and I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah, same with me. Like I said, it, it grew on me so much. And yeah, I didn't really mention the ending, but I absolutely adore this ending. Like I said, it left me scratching my head the first time I saw it. But oh, as the years go along, and even on this watch, I even have in my notes, this is the only ending that makes sense. And I got a exactly. big smiley face. <laughs> so yeah, I absolutely love it. So, okay, let's go to uh, my... Uh, Oh, what do we call him? My work wife, I guess. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Mike Merriman. What do you got on Psycho 2? <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is one, you know, I saw randomly through the years just because, you know, it was a sequel to a classic. And I, I think um, something that was interesting for at least my experience is I found, I found this one to be much more of like a mystery as far as figuring out what's exactly going on, who's doing the killing and then all the twists and stuff. And I say that only because I, I think a lot, a lot of times for my age group, um, we, we kind of grew up in a time where the original psycho, a lot of the stuff that happened in that movie was already like kind of infirmed in, uh, pop culture. Mm -hmm. Um, the whole Norma Bates thing in the mother dynamic, even people who hadn't seen Psycho, you know, whether were familiar with kind of like the, the score, the main themes, the twists in it. So even when I first saw uh, the original Psycho, I still kind of marveled at the movie itself, but there wasn't a lot that came off as uh, surprising to me. Um, but what, but the other thing that I noticed is, the rest of the psycho movies were just barely ever even like talked about period. And I don't even mean just like in a podcast sense in that whole world, but just in general, like people just didn't talk about the other ones. So when I, you know, I, I'm sure I rented it probably the first time I saw it. Um, a lot of the events in this one, man, I was pretty like, compelled with the, the story and the twist and the whole dynamic of, okay, this, you know, this murderer um, got out of jail after all these years or the asylum, whatever. And he's trying to, I guess, go back to somewhat a normal life. And then here you have uh, characters related to characters from the first one that are going to mess with him. And by the end, you're like, okay, what exactly is going on? Is he, deranged again is he just being messed with you know and who's behind it and you know i thought that last kind of like half hour 45 minutes where just things are falling into place and reveals are happening and yeah that final scene um feels very appropriate to how it ends and then the way it sets it up um it's another one of those kids where like you didn't need to have a psycho three after this with the way it was set up but uh you've it didn't exactly make you surprised that there was another one after uh, this one. But overall, yeah, I 
had fun with this one. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, so, um, uh, you know, it was a good chance to watch it again. And, uh, yeah, I like the performances this a lot. Perkins, I, I, I felt like he was really good at kind of trying to play that line between, oh, my God, am I actually going crazy again or or what? Uh, Meg Tilly uh, was great. Um, but, yeah, overall, Psycho 2, I I am a fan and I like it. And now it kind of makes me want to revisit three because I have seen all four, but I, I don't remember a lot from, for some reason I remember four just cause it's kind of gross in some ways, but, <laughs> but three is the one I, I, I'm, I can't like piece together what the story of three was too detailed in my head. So I might have to check that one out now, but yeah, psycho two. Um, I think this is a pretty solid movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I echo everything you said, but and I also forgot to mention this cast. I mean, we, you know, we obviously have the return of Anthony Perkins, but we also have the return of Vera Miles, who played, you know, Leela Crane in the original. Uh, we got Meg Tilly, Robert Loja, Dennis Franz. I mean, we've got a, a really good cast. Uh, by the way, did you notice a very young Oz Perkins in the film? <laughs> Oz Perkins, who is now mm-hmm. a very acclaimed horror director, uh, who's got, what, three movies under his belt now, and all three of them are great. So You, you, you mentioned Dennis, Dennis Franz, and he's definitely at his Franziest. <laughs> he plays a spectacular douchebag. Yes, he does. All right. Um, last but definitely not least, Mr. Tilly, educate me on your thoughts on Psycho 2. You know, rather notoriously, Quentin Tarantino prefers Psycho 2 to the original film. And while I wouldn't go that far, one of the things that I like so much about Psycho 2 is how ballsy it is in terms of the decisions that they made. And the biggest central one is the one we've already talked about, which is the idea of bringing back Norman Bates. And for the maybe in one of those rare instances, certainly rare instances in a horror movie, where his rehabilitation worked, where he got, you know, therapy and he actually came out a better person and recognizes the, the terrible things he, he did and feels awful about it, but is trying to reintegrate himself into society. I mean, think about the era that this is coming after, those 70s movies where, God, it seemed like every second one had a person trying to get out of jail because they're, they're you know, they're, they're copping an insanity plea, and that scene is something that is impossible. But this movie's called Psycho. He is psychotic by the very nature of what we're talking about here, and of course that's a mental illness. So the idea that this movie treats that mental illness seriously and his rehabilitation seriously and Robert Loggia isn't a piece of shit that he actually does care. I mean, you spend the whole movie waiting for Robert Loggia who has been a piece of shit in dozens of different movies <laughs> to, to be shown as being, you know, behind something or part of the conspiracy or whatever. But no, he's legitimately a decent doctor who wants Norman to be rehabilitated into society and is concerned for him. Um, and the, and the other ballsy part, there's actually two other huge ballsy moves here. One of them is that they don't repeat the Bernard Herrmann score from Psycho. It's not, you know, eat, eat, eat. It, it doesn't do it. it you, you can watch Reanimator, and it basically takes the Psycho score piece by piece. This movie barely has any echoes of that soundtrack at all, and that's such a iconic part of Psycho. And when I think someone said that this movie doesn't necessarily feel like Psycho, I think that's a huge part of it, even though it uses... A lot of the, the, the cinematography is meant to look like parts of Psycho. But the other part is taking a sympathetic character from the first one and making them a villain in this one. 
a brilliant move, right? And something that if this movie was really terrible, it it, it really has that uh, ability to do the thing that people are most worried about when it comes to sequels, which is that it can retroactively make the original film worse because it makes you see a character in a different light that that isn't what the original person intended and you could still see this movie in that way but i think that the way that they do it where they have characters gaslighting norman bates they're trying to drive him insane that they are pushing him towards something that he is resisting and they make him because of that great anthony perkins performance incredibly sympathetic and even just the idea of making norman bates the main character, which he isn't in Psycho. Here, he clearly is. We spend almost the entire film with him, uh, and him, and, and we get that relationship with Mary. And we know that he's still kind of a creepy guy. But and they they do even kind of do these hints that well, is, is, has he really fallen into the behavior without being pushed? Like with the idea of him watching Mary showering, but then we find out that wasn't him. That all these other things are kind of us as the audience being gaslit a little bit. As well, so it really is kind of a fascinating movie. Uh, of course, written by the great Tom Holland, uh, which I don't think we've mentioned yet. A lot of really uh, top-notch talent uh, behind the camera, but these aren't like top-notch in terms of slick Hollywood talent. This could have easily been a schlocky cash grab sequel, but instead, it, it's one that kind of swings for the fences again and again. I think Anthony Perkins is the key to keeping it all together. He probably wouldn't have come back unless. Norman Bates was at the center of the movie and that could again that could have went wrong as well but instead I think this is the one of the the really key examples of how a sequel can take the original material recontextualize it add texture and add uh interesting elements to the characters and do something really different with it so I'm I'm a big Psycho 2 fan again I wouldn't say it's better than the original Psycho but in terms of giving me confidence that you can make a strong uh, follow up this this long of a gap afterwards, it really does the job. Of course, um, that then leads to a bunch of movies that are not as good as Psycho. Uh, and I don't mean the Psycho sequels, though I do like Psycho 3 very much. I just mean it probably gave people a lot of confidence that you could do this sort of thing. And then you get things like, you know, 2010, the next year, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last couple of things I wanted to talk about, too, was um, I, I love the ramped up kills. Obviously, it's 23 years later. So, you know, <laughs> uh, the viewers, you know, the sensitivity of viewers has gone, you know, not their threshold has gone up. So obviously, you kind of have to up the shock value a little bit more. You get a great face face slice open and then you get a great just stab through the mouth kill, too, which I mean, these are all quick kills, but. You know, um, compared to what we got in 1960, it's a little something for the horror hounds like myself. And then last but not least, you know, we already talked about how this movie, as far as its cinematography goes, pales in comparison to anything that Hitchcock can put together. But I do want to point out the stellar opening and closing shots of the film with the uh, with the Bates house in the background and the sun setting behind it. I mean, you know, kind of cheesy and, and uh, you know, maybe maybe even a little pa pandering to the fans, but whatever. I don't mind being pandered to every well, now I mean, and how, how amazing is it that Dean Cundy, who was the cinematographer for Halloween, you know, which is notoriously was clearly inspired by Hitchcock. Now he's doing the follow-up to, uh, to Hitchcock's classic. Pretty amazing kind of a uh, cycle of career there. Absolutely. It's a small world. Mm. <laughs> All right. So at this point I will hand it off to the next host. Who's up? That would be me. All right. I, yeah, yep. Iris. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
It's been so oh, long. No, no, no. I was just. <laughs> I just. Yeah, no, keep it, talking. The less we uh, hear from Mike, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make it short and sweet. Iris, you're up next. What movie did you pick? I have The Color of Money, and this is kind of like the sequel to The Hustler from 1961. So there is a 25-year difference between the original and this one. So basically, this one is the continuing story, I guess you could say, about uh, Fast Eddie, who was a pool hustler. And um, he, again, is being played by Paul Newman. And Fast Eddie's basically, you know, he's he's now a liquor salesman. And he still, you know, goes in and he bets on on the on the other pool hustlers and watching Nightball and stuff. But then he sees one of his fellow hustlers, Julian, uh kinda beat by this kid named Vincent Loria. So, you know, Fast Eddie being who he is kind of recognizes the skills here. And he also sees that they're a bit uh, inexperienced in luring people in. So he basically tells them, like, hey, look, let's join up and make each other some money. And that's basically what the theme of this movie, well, not the whole theme of this movie, but this is basically where it goes on. So um, just real quick, the cast in this. We have Paul Newman, of course, as Eddie. Tom Cruise as Vincent Loria. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as Carmen. Alan Shavers uh, Janelle. John Torturo as Julian. And uh, Forrest Whitaker shows up as Amos. He's also a pool hustler. Well, a pool player, I'll say. So basically, um, Carmen... Goes to find out, you know, what is the deal with what what does Vincent, what does Eddie want to do with Vincent? And he basically convinces them that they're going to go on this six week tour of hustling. And it's all going to lead to Atlantic City. And um, it starts out okay, I guess. But the problem is that Vincent can't get over his ego and his arrogance and does not like throwing games, so then he can, you know, kind of build up the pool. You know, it's the hustle, right? You build up that pool, you kind of pull somebody in and go, oh, this kid sucks, I'm going to, you know, like mop the floor with him, and all of a sudden, big money on the table, and boom, you get hustled because the kid wins, right? Well, he just had too much ego for that, so he can't do it. And that's basically the struggle between Eddie Carmen and Vincent through this whole time. Now, my question to you guys isn't just like, tell me what you think about the movie. I'd like for you guys to think about, is this movie about the hustle? Or is this movie about the relationship between the characters and how arrogance and ego gets in the way? Uh, Let's go with Doug first. So uh, I'd seen The Color of Money before, but I had actually never watched The Hustler before. So I went back and watched that first. And boy, I'm glad I did because that movie is fucking amazing. It's sharp, it really it? is incredible. And in fact, uh, in some ways, it maybe have hurt the way seeing it so closely uh, to watching The Color of Money. It may have actually hurt 
my viewing of The Color of Money, which I think in isolation, because again, it is not the kind of sequel that requires you to know much about the background of the characters, except for sort of hints that are spread throughout it, that uh, that it made it maybe not as sharp or not as interesting. And I'm saying this as someone who's a massive fan of Martin Scorsese and a massive fan of a lot of the people that are in The Color of Money as well. The thing about The Hustler is that it's very much a complete story. And I do love the conceit of the George C. Scott character in The Hustler that basically Paul Newman is going to take on that role. However, with the knowledge of the kind of damage that a person like that can do and trying to do it in some ways, I guess you could say, quote unquote, the right way. Uh, so he, he doesn't become as emotionally and psychologically damaging as George C. Scott was in that movie. Um, and, and, and again, I, I don't, and even like, making it so that the Jackie Gleason character is not introduced in this movie again, that this is supposed to be its own contained story. I think that was actually a wise decision because again, there's such a huge gap between the hustler and the color of money. So in terms of the movie, I don't think it's as psychologically or uh, interesting as the original film or as cerebral in a lot of ways, but I do like the idea that it is a very much an eighties movie. Like The Hustler feels very much like an early 60s movie. This feels very much like that mid-80s movie. Tom Cruise is at his cockiest here. I also think he's not very good in this movie. And I think Tom Cruise is actually a really strong actor in a lot of different movies. And he's done this exact same role where he's playing the the cocky guy who has this uh, older dude who's trying to walk him through something. And he did it in Cocktail. He did it in Days of Thunder. He's done this role a bunch of times. I think he's just too cocky here. And he's just a little too abrasive in a way that uh, even though we're supposed to at the very end of the movie see him as having matured a little bit, that uh, that that doesn't happen until the last 20 minutes of a two hour long movie. And he can just be a little much, uh, even though that's what the character is supposed to be. It's just a little irritating to spend the time with him, particularly because we get that one sequence. And I'm glad that you brought it up, Iris, with Forrest Whitaker, who almost steals the whole movie. In a one fucking scene in this movie, and all afterwards, right? afterwards, I was like, "Why? Let's." He should have been the character. I would have, well, I would have, e- gladly watched two hours of that character and seeing where his brain is and how all of this came together. It seemed so much more interesting. I also thought it was really funny that they get to, uh, they go to uh, Eddie brings, I should say, Eddie brings Vincent to an old pool hall that he used to shoot in, and now it's it's apparently a very rough pool hall. And it's not that it looks dirty or it it's just that there's now uh, like black people in there. And apparently that, that's just enough for it to be like a dangerous neighborhood. It looks perfectly nice inside. I don't really see what the deal is, but it's just a, a per- perception of what rough means, I guess, in the mid 1980s. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a lot of great stuff in here. Paul Newman is still amazing in this. I mean, he really is a powerhouse. And I love to think about what brought that character from the end of The Hustler to the beginning of The Color of Money, where it, it does take a little bit of kind of mental finale, uh, <laughs> finagling, there we go, to try to make those characters fit together. But that's more realistic to me than when you watch a sequel with a kind of a large gap and the person just seems to be continuing off from the end of the first movie. This is a person who's lived a life since then. He doesn't wallow in all of the things that happened in the uh, in, in the Hustler. This is still uh, uh, someone who has had a lot of different experiences. So I, I think um, 
I think that this movie has has an incredible <clears throat> this movie has an incredible visual style. Of course, Scorsese is in charge of it. Of course, it would. But I also think that Scorsese has said over the years that this was very much a work for hire, and you can see that he doesn't have the passion for this that he does, even for the material he's doing around this time period, like After Hours and um, uh, and that the God, my mind went absolutely blank. I mean, certainly the King of Comedy, things like that. So this is a movie that that I feel like. In some ways, it exists simply from the will of Paul Newman wanting it to exist because he was pushing so hard for this movie to happen. But that doesn't mean that it's uh, not a worthy sequel. It's just that The Hustler is an impossible movie to live up to. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. And especially with Amos, I if this movie would have been about him, maybe I it would have been a little bit more intriguing. It would have pulled me in a lot more, kind of like you said. Um, but you also brought up a very good point. Eddie had lived his life. Eddie kind of like, you know, he understood that he had to walk away from his a pool hustling because I mean, that wasn't going to get him nowhere. So it's not like there's this deadbeat guy who still thinks he can hustle. No, it is a guy who, you know, just happened to be in the pool hall because, you know, that that used to be his life. He That's how. He hangs out, you know, and he sees this kid and goes, hey, here's an opportunity. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed about that. And I'm glad you brought that up. I had difficulty because I couldn't figure out what the movie was really about until the final 20 minutes or so, you know, simply because, yeah, yeah it, it seems like it's going to be about this one thing. And then the movie, quite interestingly, goes in a different direction. But when I found out what it was really about, I was like. Yeah, okay. You know, it didn't really it that didn't grab me as much as the kind of I I, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is the destination didn't grab me as much as the journey and the journey had a little a few rough spots here and there as well, but that doesn't make it, you know, not a lot of fun to to to, you know, to see the sights as we go along. Very very cool. Cool. Thanks, Doug. All right. Mike, let's go to you. All right. Well, I agree with a lot of stuff that's already been said. I, I definitely agree. Like after that scene uh, with Eddie and Amos, I'm like, should Eddie just Amos and Paul ass out of there right now? Because it seems like he's the <laughs> the pupil that Eddie should want um, because he he already has kind of like the hustler mindset going for him, whereas uh vincent's more it's he's more about you know just winning and showing off and uh you know that's a big struggle between him and eddie throughout the movie um is is uh eddie trying to teach him the actual hustling lifestyle as opposed to just going out there and showing all your hands right away or you know your skills in hand right away losing out on all this potential money uh, I agree. I, there's a lot of good performances in this movie. A lot of familiar actors of the time show up. Uh, I do. I do kind of struggle, like what with, with what the movie was trying to say or what it was about. We we kind of it swings towards that in the conclusion. Um, but I I, I kind of agree with the sentiment that like the journey is is better than where the movie ends up or when it ends just kind of like, okay, you know, it's kind of like a, a life in a life, a look at six weeks in the life of uh, an old retired pool, pool shark and his potential star pupil. Um, 
I, I like the movie just fine. Um, I agree. I mean, trying to hold it up to the hustler is just a tall task, regardless. Um, I almost, and I think maybe Doug was alluding to this. It almost would be better if you hadn't really seen the hustler like recently, or because it, it's definitely like a, a sequel because of Fast Eddie. But even without having seen the hustler, you 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 get enough of Eddie's character and what his perceived, you know, what his past is as a character to know, okay, it's established enough basically that you don't necessarily need to see the hustler. Um, you should see the hustler just because it's a fantastic movie. But this is one of those sequels where it's not necessary. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think that, you know, there's a lot of good individual scenes. I think it's a fun movie to get through. Uh, you know, I like uh, movies having to do with like sports competition. You know, I guess even billiards you can consider sports in that sense. But you know, uh, I liked it. I liked you know, all the bars, the bar scenes, the different pool halls, the different you know, uh, odd characters that show up as like your your local pool sharks. You know, every town has has different looking puns. They come in all forms and shapes, sizes. Uh, everything so that you know that's kind of cool seeing them travel around to do their hustling um vincent's just you know a young cocky hothead that just doesn't want to get with the program and uh fast eddie's he he met his limit a few times in this movie and then it seems like finally at the end they kind of uh they reconcile somewhat and then the movie's over just like that um but yeah i I would still say this is a fun movie but definitely if anyone listening hasn't seen the hustler check that one out as well most definitely and and both you and uh, doug mentioned this so it seems like um the one in the 60s very much was had the feel of an exploitation film right and then this one had more of a feel of like a coming of age, uh, rite of passage type of film, which it's kind of hard to marry those two together. And I think that's where maybe the disconnect might be. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, like Vincent, to me, I, when you're comparing it to The Hustler, as far as how that movie played out, like Vincent doesn't seem like the natural heir to Fast Eddie to me. Um, like I said, like I like we already brought up, like to me, it seems like Amos <laughs> is more like the, right. the next guy in line, the more appropriate or one that would make sense. But obviously, by the time that scene takes place, we're firmly entrenched into what, like an hour and an hour and a half of the movie or whatever. Well, cool. Um, I've got you, you know, I, it, I mean, it is a, a good movie, it, it's enjoyable, but um, comparatively, you, you really can't do it. <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Venom, please. All right. Well, um, believe it or not, The Hustler and Color of Money were both first-time watches for me. I'm not the biggest sports movie fan. I'm sure a lot of people probably figured that out. Um, It's just one of those things that I'd rather just watch sports than watch a fictional telling of a sporting event. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. And as I'm watching this movie, it definitely felt like, at times, it didn't really know what it wanted to be. Like, it's not a sports movie. 
it's not it's kind of a road movie and you know and then it's kind of the story of a mentor and his you know kind of padawan if you will and their travels across the country to a you know pool tournament it it, it just felt weird to me like it, it felt like the tone was changing constantly throughout the film from this gritty you know smoky barroom pool scenes to suddenly tom cruise jumping on his bed like a fucking 10 year old it, it's it's just really an odd movie to put together um D- uh, doug mentioned scorsese as the director i you know going into this film i had no idea this movie does not feel like scorsese remotely um you know, it, like I said, if you wouldn't have told me that or if I hadn't have read it on IMDb, I would have never guessed it. Just just didn't doesn't have the feel. It doesn't feel like he took the care with this film like he does with his classics. But you might have guessed it from that opening narration bit simply because that's Scorsese's voice. But I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just. Definitely didn't feel like it. And then and then back to Doug's point about uh, Tom Cruise as Vincent. Yeah. What just giant douche from beginning to end like what is his character arc i don't think he has one he's a bigger douche at the end of the movie than he is at the beginning he just has more money so it's it's really hard to look and i know that vincent's probably not supposed to be our main protagonist in the film it's you know obviously the hustler himself uh fast eddie but I don't know. It's like you're you're trying to you're giving this kid so much screen time, but he's just so incredibly unlikable. It's like I'm trying I'm trying to guess what the director's point of putting him on screen in front of me so much was. If his if his point was to get me to dislike him, well then it was an absolute success. And like I said, I understand that this is more Fast Eddie's movie. Um, but it also felt like the movie didn't have much of an ending. Like it felt like a middle chapter to a bigger story. Because then our movie ends with Eddie just declaring that he's back. It's like, I, I really wish that, even though I'm not the biggest fan of sports movies, I wish that the pool events would have been handled with a little bit more fanfare, maybe. Like, when when Eddie beats his original protege, Julian, there's nothing. There's no fanfare, there's no drama, no slow motion. It, it's like the match just ends. And it's like, oh, Fetty just or Fast Eddie just beat his protege and... I'm not supposed to feel anything. Okay, we move on. And then even, you know, when he faces Vincent in the tournament and we get the outcome of that match, nothing like there's no fanfare, no drama, no slow motion. Even during the montage itself, they're not even giving us a running score. So this is hands down not a sports movie or a movie about pool to answer Iris's original question. This is definitely a movie of a former hustler who's trying to, you know, figure out his place in the world. Does he want to remain an alcohol salesman or does he want to get back into the game that he loves? And that aspect I love. I think Paul Newman did a spectacular job in this film. Um, and yes, this movie definitely needed more Forrest Whitaker, and it, it, which actually bothers me because at the tournament, once we get to the tournament in Vegas, we actually see other characters that these guys have already played against mm-hmm. um, on the on their journey. Where the hell was Forrest Whitaker? Where was the one guy that embarrassed them on the road? I, I, it just feels like that would have been a little bit more drama to see either Fast Eddie himself take on Amos or Vincent take on Amos. I don't know. It just seems like they introduced... You know, one of the most likable characters, whether he's supposed to be a protagonist or an antagonist, is up to the viewer. But I think they introduce this great character to us, and then we just get five minutes, and that's it. 
And I just feel like the tension would have been more ramped up had he showed up at the tournament at the end. But again, that could be just me and my basic 80s, you know, fan pandering type films. It's like it's what I look for in a sports film. But this movie is solidly not a sports film. Uh, I also don't want to make it sound like I dislike the movie. I absolutely didn't. Paul Newman is an absolute joy to watch in this film. Um, Mary Elizabeth Mestre Antonio does a great job. Tom Cruise, eh, he's Tom Cruise. I've never been a fan of Tom Cruise. I'm not going to say he's a terrible actor because he's obviously been doing it longer than most of us have been alive, but I, I've just never really been that big a fan of him. Like, like even Leonardo DiCaprio to me did a better job of getting out of the dreamboat kind of stage of his career. Whereas Tom Cruise just feels like he's just violently clinging to it as much as he can. Um, and you know, which is fine to each his own, but yeah, I mean, what saves this movie for me are the performances, uh, really good score, not the licensed music so much. I know there's a lot of licensed music in this, Eric Clapton, stuff like that. I'm not really the biggest fan of that kind of like 80s, you know, kind of adult rock type stuff. But the score, the non-licensed music, I thought was great. I thought it was really well handled, uh, you know. Um, the scenes that needed tension, you know, it did a good job with either you know, the the proper score or no score at all. There were some scenes that were just silent and that was perfect. That was exactly what they needed. So overall, yeah, good movie. I enjoyed the movie. I don't think it's anything I'll ever revisit because I've already said I'm not the biggest sports fan. And I did kind of find myself starting to tail off at certain parts of the film. Like um, when you're not all that interested in the characters, the pacing becomes an issue. Um, so any scenes where Eddie isn't there, where it's just like Carmen and Vincent, I, I start to kind of tend to check out because, you know, I didn't really like either of those characters. Not to say that, you know, they didn't do a competent job at what they were told to do. But again, um, it's just not my kind of movie. And that's that's the last note that I took down at, at the end of this film is this is just not a film for me. Um, very well. I, I can I can recognize its merits. I, I can see what it does well. Um, but overall, it's just, I don't know, it's probably not anything that I'll return to. Um, I just, you know, Paul Newman for me was the only saving grace. Paul Newman and the tiny little bit of Forrest Whitaker. Otherwise, I feel like everybody else in the movie was mildly wasted. But, you know, that's just me. That's one man's opinion. And ultimately, I know I'm in the minority on this film because it sits at, what, like a seven point something on IMDb. So most people do really enjoy it. Um, but it's just not for me. That, that's it but good movie overall though nonetheless nice nice and yeah something you said uh, well i think all of us said it uh was with tom cruise i mean in this his uh, in this and i think every movie that he has done whether it's permissible or not that arrogance just comes through and even though it's great acting for me kind of like with you venom his characters just really turn me off. They really, really turn me off. I don't yeah. know why. But I mean, that's probably the intention. Or it, sometimes, anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine he's always trying to turn people off. But at least in this <laughs> film, I feel like it was a purposeful choice to make him not very likable. Especially once you see where the final act of the film goes and, you know, their little confrontation. It makes sense. It's, it, it, it's almost like... Uh, it's almost like in professional wrestling where they spend three months setting up a WrestleMania match. And that's what I felt the first hour and a half of this movie was. It was just setting up their obvious confrontation that was going to be coming. 
But then when it came, it just felt bland to me. And I, I'm sure it's just a filmmaking choice that they didn't make it a big old spectacular, you know, scene filled with fanfare and cheering and everything else. But I don't know. I just feel like they spend an hour and a half setting up what will eventually be Fast Eddie versus Vincent. And then when we get it, it just kind of fizzles out. So that's why I say this is solidly not a sports film to me, because I feel like most um, directors and filmmakers of sports movies know that they have to get that emotional level up. You know, you got to get that fanfare up. You got to make us care about the characters. And ultimately, since Fast Eddie isn't really the competitor in most of this film, it's Vincent. He's the guy that we're forced to kind of get behind, even though really it's Eddie that we're, you know, kind of getting behind and wishing success on. But yeah, Tom Cruise, what are you going to do? I think my wife jaded me on Tom Cruise because she can't stand him. And I think that <laughs> I think that just kind of developed into me because I was indifferent on the man. I never really cared. All through the 80s, I was like, eh, whatever. He's another pretty boy actor who maybe someday will, you know, elevate himself above, the, you know, the pretty boy thing, which I guess he has in, in his defense. You know, he's done a lot of different kinds of movies. Here we are, what, 40-something years later, and he, or almost 40 years later, and he's still a huge star, so kudos to him. But that doesn't mean I have to like him. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. All right, and well, I guess that's pretty much it for The Color of Money. All right. Well, with that, we will move right along to our next movie, which was chosen by Doug. So, Doug, why don't you tell us what you picked? Yeah, I chose uh, Drunken Master 2 uh, from 1994, which I I took the easy road. The gap between sequels, in my case, is a a scant 16 years. uh, So the shortest of any of the movies that we're talking about today. Um, But uh, I've... My reasons for picking it are actually uh, twofold. One is that I currently have a podcast on Cinema Smorgasbord called We Do Our Own Stunts, which is chronologically going through the career of Jackie Chan. Uh, And we're still in the stages uh, where they're trying to make him into the next Bruce Lee before Snake in the Eagle's Shadow broke him and then Drunken Master established him as the kind of king of comedic Kung Fu that would launch him into becoming one of the biggest stars in the world. Right now, we have not reached that on that podcast. So it, it was refreshing for me to jump ahead a few steps to get to where he, at this point, Drunken Master 2, was established as an incredible star, not just of martial arts movies, really a pop culture figure. Uh, not yet had broken out in the West so much because uh, Rumble in the Bronx, I guess, would have been right around the same time uh, that this uh, that this movie came out. But um, it still would have been another year or so until the, in the U.S. Drunken, that Jackie Chan became sort of a household name. But Drunken Master 2 is like the height of Jackie Chan mania, let's say, and also the height of his skills. Drunken Master, I think, is a really... Great kung fu movie directed by Yu Wu Ping has this incredible choreography, but it has a lot of the flaws of a classic martial arts movie, Golden Harvest movie from that time period. And so does Drunken Master 2 to a certain extent. But I think of Drunken Master 2 as the last of the great old old school kung fu movies. And I think that part of that is that it brings the Golden Harvest style that Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and all of those figures and Yu Wu Ping of that time period. And then you have this film directed by Lao Kar Lung, who was a central figure for Shaw Brothers, uh, uh, and you have some Shaw Brothers actors in this film that appear as well. It The tension of that coming together is one of the things I love most about this movie. And uh, even though that the plot is kind of shaky, I mean, there's a, bit, a lot of nationalism in it, in it, as there were in a lot of the Kung Fu movies of this time period, and the Western characters are pr- particularly presented as just 
flat cartoonishly evil, uh, you know, basically presented in the same way that American movies were presenting Asian characters the, the entire decade before. Uh, it's a movie that I love from start to finish almost entirely because of Jackie Chan, because he is amazing in this movie. Just an incredible, incredible physical uh, specimen. I don't know that's a weird thing to say. What I mean is his feats of martial arts action in this are so incredible. And I, you know, and I do think that a lot of his, you know, I do my own stunts. I break bones in every movie thing. It's been kind of overblown and overstated, but here he's such an incredible thing to watch uh, that it, it kind of overtakes everything else you see. This movie also has two of my favorite Kung Fu sequences ever. The uh, tea house fight where the tea house is basically destroyed to the point that it falls apart, where hundreds and hundreds of uh, axe-wielding uh, uh, gang members come in to attack both Jackie Chan and the director, Lao Kar Lung, who, of course, is an incredible martial artist in his own right, and the final uh, battle, which is maybe the greatest martial arts uh, sequence in any film ever made. Um, it is a film that, that I think you have to have watched a few martial arts movies to really get into the mindset of what these are supposed to be, that this isn't uh, high art in the terms of the plot that it's on display, but the, there is a, I think this is actually something that we're all kind of aware of now that there is such a great skill in making these martial arts sequences seem so fast and effective and hard hitting and dangerous at times, especially the real danger that's on display that you come away with it with a combination of respect and awe, but also that kind of weird feeling in your stomach of, oh my God, I almost saw someone die. And you feel that in a way that is very visceral that you don't really see in a lot of Western action movies. So I think Drunken Master 2 is just the peak of all of those different feelings. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It came out the same year, I guess, uh, as um, Fist of Legend, the Jet Li movie, which is also an incredible movie, but, uh, but it's a very different kind of movie and was kind of dictating how martial arts movies were being made at that time. So yeah, I love Drunken Master 2. I think it's actually uh, a much better movie than the original Drunken Master, not that there's anything wrong with it. But I know that's kind of a controversial uh, opinion. That said, I do think that in in martial arts circles, Drunken Master 2 is considered one of the great Jackie Chan movies. I'm very curious to see how everyone responded to it. Uh, let's start with Jerry. What would you think? Drunken Master 2. I absolutely adore this film. I have for decades. I, I fell in love with this film the very first time I saw it probably like 95, 96. I absolutely love what they do with the character, uh, with Jackie Chan's character. And let me give a little a caveat to that. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, I went ahead and watched all the original films for our sequels today just to kind of refamiliarize myself with everything. And I watched the original Drunken Master. And I have to say, I hate Jackie Chan in that movie. Not, <laughs> not his acting or his skills. He's a piece of shit. Like, think about it. In the first five minutes of, dr of the original Drunken Master, he sexually assaults a girl, mm -hmm. physically attacks her grandmother, gets his ass handed to him by said grandmother, goes and starts a fight with an old man who later would become his master. He dine and dashes at least a couple of times. I mean, he's just not a very likable character in the original Drunken Master. I'm not sure if this is the same actual character between the, same, between the two movies. But for whatever it's worth, I I thank heaven that they uh, kind of redeemed Jackie Chan's character. So, because I, I mean, it, that's a really amazing point to bring up because, of course, Jackie Chan's playing Wang Fei Hung in both of these movies, who is this kind of like legendary folk hero, but real person 
in in Chinese mythology that, that has been played by a ton of different people. There's a whole series of movies of Wang Fei Hung movies, and uh, Sammo Hung has played him uh, in multiple movies, in fact. And he's just this character that shows up again and again and again in all of these different forms. But you're absolutely right. Sometimes he's he's shown as this incredible refined master of martial arts who's very stoic but in first drunken master he's an asshole here he's played by jackie chan again a 40 year old jackie chan playing like mid early 20s by the way uh but at least he's he's toned down he's not as a tom cruise ish in this movie oh yeah yeah absolutely that was i mean and i i watched these two movies back to back literally on the same night and i just i was so happy to watch drunken master 2 and see them re kind of redeem that character because it was really hard to get through the first one it's really hard for me to watch a movie where the antagonist the person or excuse me the protagonist the person that i'm supposed to be supporting is just a completely unlikable douche you know, I mean, I can still appreciate the movie for its action, its editing, its score, you know, all of its technical aspects. But goddamn, did I hate Jackie Chan in the first Drunken Master. So off to um, Drunken Master 2. And yes, as I've already said, I love this movie. I am right there with Doug. That final fight in the factory is literally one of the greatest fights laid to celluloid. I absolutely love that battle. Um, the Tea House fight, also great, but just... The, the character arc of Jackie Chan's character in this one just makes so much more sense than in the original. And, and it's much more satisfying, too, to see someone who's actually somewhat likable, you know, get that win at the end and, you know, be the hero the community needs them to be. So, I mean, between the great score, the ridiculous effects, and, and when you watch the, the end credits and you see kind of the gag reel, mm -hmm. the, the, the things that Jackie Chan goes through to make these little movies, I mean, I, I'm not sure if these movies are considered huge blockbusters at the time of release you know, in Hong Kong, but, man, the things that he goes through, I mean, burning his hands in that fire pit, just, ah, just watching this is so painful. I mean, I, I'm always a big fan of gag reels, but something, Jackie Chan's gag reels are also incredibly painful, but, you know, being a fan of mixed martial arts and in general, you know, the scantily clad men beating the crap out of each other, you know, I, I can appreciate a good Jackie Chan gag reel. So, yeah, th there's nothing about this film I don't enjoy. I think I love all of these characters. Um, you know, I, I like the uh, what was the servant's name? I totally forgot. But the, but the you know the guy that Jackie Chan is usually hanging around with. Mm -hmm. um, even the villains, even the villains in this movie have a certain like ability to them. Not to say that you're you're getting behind them and rooting for them, but they, you know they come off as genuine. They come off as legitimately unlikable people without necessarily coming off like Tom Cruise in The Color of Money. So. You know, that's that's always a plus. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, um, just the, the comedy in this works incredibly well. Jackie Chan is an absolute master. I, honestly, as he gets older, I feel like he's getting funnier. And, you know, mm -hmm. eventually he's just going to be a straight up comic, you know, in his films. Once his body can't handle, um, which is probably right now for all I know, because how old is Jackie Chan now? He's got to be in his 70s, right? 60s, 70s? I mean, I think he's exactly 40 here in 94. Uh, okay. and yeah, so yeah, we're like 25 years after that. Uh, exactly. so yeah, mid sixties. So he's probably at that point right now where he's probably not doing the, as much of the physical stuff as he used to, but I would still, I would love to see if he did any straight comedies, um, in Hong Kong or even in America that maybe I'm not familiar with. 
because I think that would work for me a lot. I like his style. I like his goofy faces that he makes, his incredibly infectious smile. I mean, he's he's just a very likable character and an actor, excuse me, not just character. But yeah, um, again, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to ramble on for too long, because as I've already said, this is literally one of my favorite martial arts movies ever. I was introduced to it as the legend of Drunken Master. Of course, you know, the American version that's got some minor edits to it and an English dub. But watching, you know, Drunken Master 2, I totally agree with Doug. Just the way that it's put together, the way it's presented just works a little bit better for the story. So, yeah, thank you very much, because I who knows if I would have ever actually sought out the uh, the actual Chinese version of Drunken Master 2, because I own Legend of Drunken Master. I own the American DVD. And I, you know, literally until recently, I didn't know that there was that many differences between the two films. So, yeah. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. And just thank you for bringing a fun-ass movie to my world. That's always acceptable. <laughs> uh, ra- rather notoriously, Lao Kar Lung and Jackie Chan really uh, butted heads making Drunken Master 2 to the point where Lao Kar Lung was fired from the movie and Jackie Chan, I think, took over to film the final uh, scene, which took quite a long time to film. So you can see he's kind of – he's going hard. He's making sure uh-huh. that this movie is going to uh-huh. end pretty fucking strong. Uh, and I do think that there is elements of this movie where you can kind of see that the plot doesn't hold together because maybe there was some difficulty editing uh, the material together. There's these weird kind of supporting characters that sort of show up sometimes and then they disappear and then they show up again. And it's hard to know when, like, it feels like there's a little bit of the plot that's been cut out. But, I mean, it's hard to get that. That's kind of splitting hairs when it comes to the uh, the the what this movie is really about, which is the kung mm-hmm. fu scenes. Michael, uh, I'm guessing that you've seen Drunken Master 2 before. What do you think? I absolutely have, and I loved it from the first time I saw it. Uh, I agree with uh, what you said earlier, where this was firmly in time when Jackie Chan had um, established himself as no longer trying to be the next Bruce Lee, or I guess the powers that be trying to make him be the next Bruce Lee. And them going away from that was probably the greatest thing to happen to his career because, you know, in the post Bruce Lee world of martial arts films, yes, there was many attempts to like find, okay, who, who can we just make Bruce Lee movies with, but without Bruce Lee and, uh, didn't always work out so well, if at all. And, uh, Jackie Chan really finding his own, um, his own path in the genre uh, it became apparent as the years started going by. I, uh, you know, I love what I love about his style and his movies. There's a with the fight coordination, the imagination behind it, but there's also kind of like the slapstick nature to these grand fight scenes that they're just fun to watch and fun to imagine. Like, how the hell did they put this together? You know, with just the creativity behind it, all the props he uses within um, the fights. Uh, This era of Jackie Chan, and it probably started a little bit before this, but especially between Legend of uh, Drunken Master 2 and uh, when he started breaking out in America, you know, if you were like a slasher movie fan, you're going to see the kills. If you're a fan of Jackie Chan movies, uh, to compare to you're going because you know you're going to get these crazy over-the-top fight scenes. And I, I feel like like the stories and the plots almost play a backseat. Obviously, you're following along in the story. You 
you would always like everything to make perfect or you know good enough sense, and for the most part they do. But I, but I, I just have this this uh, thing where man, I'm going to see Jackie Chan, and I want to see crazy fight scenes, and they pretty much always deliver and everything else takes a back seat. And as long as it's competent in some way, you're going to feel satisfied with the product. Um, I, I, I love the style of film. Jackie Chan is the master at it. Uh, he's been going at it a long time. There's lots to see from him. I feel like you could basically throw this movie on for someone and say, if you don't like this, just don't watch any Jackie Chan movies. Cause this, uh, it's hard to pinpoint like my favorite. This is definitely in the running for my all time favorite Jackie Chan movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to say things that haven't already been said about it, but I, I just think that this movie has all sorts of charm to it. Um, I, I think the comedic aspects feel natural with uh, with his characters and just him as an actor and a person he feels kind of like that kind of guy off screen as well obviously it, his characters in films are exaggerated uh for the movies themselves but they kind you know it almost feels like an extension of his personality coming out in these movies kind of like the jokey wants to have fun type of guy so the fact that you said he kind of took over on this production uh it makes a lot of sense the way things played out the way the fight scenes were uh choreographed and man it, this is it's just a fun movie it's an easy movie to watch over and over uh because of those uh epic fight scenes they're not something that leave your memory very quick and uh i think it you know this and other jackie chan movies are great like introductories for people into the genre itself i mean I guess, yeah, when you start with one so good, it's like, well, it might be downhill from here, but <laughs> there's some that are almost as good as this one. But, yeah, Drunken Master 2, legendary movie for me. Always have loved it. We'll never get tired of watching it. It's It's been one of the really rewarding things uh, doing the podcast where we're chronologically going through Jackie Chan's career that you get to see you know, him going from bit parts – him, you know, getting chosen to uh, by Low Way to star in films in an attempt to make him the next great um, superstar. Uh, following the death of Bruce Lee, the failure of that, and then see his rise in sort of this different form. At the point that Drunken Master Two came out, right? I mean, he is so established and so confident in everything that he's doing, but. And it's kind of fun for me, right? Because I've been entrenched in this part where he seems very hesitant because he doesn't know that what he's doing is working and he doesn't know if he ever is going to establish himself. There are parts, you know, there are times in the uh, mid to late 70s where he's thinking of quitting movies altogether and just, you know, 16 years later, he could not be any bigger. And then I say that and just a couple of years after this movie came out, he became even bigger because he he broke through in the uh, in the West as well. It, it's really an incredible thing to see. Iris, your thoughts on Drunken Master 2. Well, I, gee, I don't know what else I could add. I, too, love, absolutely love this movie. And it it has to do everything with with Jackie Chan. Uh, his, like you guys said, his characters are always so much fun. And uh, my daughter is a huge Jackie Chan fan ever since she was little. When she was little, she said that's who she was going to marry. She was going to marry Jackie Chan. Um, and because of her, I have been I had watched more and more of these Jackie Chan movies. But I'd have to say this one. And I got to see Rumble in the Bronx, I believe, in the movie theater 
And I think those two are, are pretty much my favorite movies uh, of his uh, because his character is just, to me, it, it seems like Jackie Chan comes through those characters. Not that those characters are Jackie Chan in a way, I guess. Because he does seem, like you guys were saying, he does seem like a fun jokester kind of guy. And in some of the um, like gag reels and things that I've seen, it, it he is that goofy dude that likes to poke fun at himself and and others and, and it really shows in this movie uh, and another thing is not only is he just a great choreographer and uh you know his martial arts skills but his skills as an acrobat are just fucking amazing too and, and um i don't and the, the story in this is it, you know it's cute and it's funny and it i love the ending it's very um you know, patriotic, I, I would have to say, or, or national, you know, mm. you know, and uh, <laughs> but to me, I don't know, a lot of Jackie Chan's movies, the plot to me is kind of secondary because I want to watch him fight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you guys. It, it's that's the main thing for me in, in, in his movies, because I enjoy watching him just do the things that he does how goofy sometimes, you know, he's like fighting and all of a sudden he's like, Oh, he's just holding the steering wheel of something, you know, and then he's using the steering wheel of something, you know, stuff like that. So it, the, these movies are always very enjoyable. And um, also with Wong Fei Hung, you know, what you mentioned this, Doug, you know, he was a real person and yeah, he, his dad was a medicine man. And being that they go, to, you know, and, and had bought ginseng and it got stolen. <laughs> well, yes, that's what his dad used to do. He and his dad used to go do that. They would go to Canton to um, buy stuff or supplies for, you know, the shop that his dad had. So I found that kind of interesting, too. You but. want to see a different uh, version of that relationship. If you've ever seen the film Iron Monkey, uh, Donnie Yen plays uh, Yu Ping's, uh, sorry, Wang Fei Hung's father in that movie uh and and uh is a is a um a, a doctor or i guess a medicine person in that film just like uh the character in this movie oh cool i'm gonna have to check that out another great movie Mm-hmm. Mm, doug, i don't think doug, i've seen that one doug doug i'm sure you've seen the police story movies right Mm-hmm. other excellent jackie chan movies i gotta say i mean frankly when it comes to Especially, particularly the uh, the 80s and right up until the late 90s, Jackie Chan movies. Aside from a few very specific ones, <laughs> uh, they're almost all amazing. I mean, there is a a real consistency of quality there, and it's honest, honestly the reason that we started the podcast in the first place was to get to those uh, moments. But we're still building at the point where we are currently. Uh, we're certainly anticipating it. Um, my understanding, I haven't seen a lot of recent Jackie Chan movies. I'm a little disappointed in his modern politics. And um, and as his, as um, Jerry suggested, his body is breaking down now. It's more difficult for him to do the action scenes in his movies. He's leaning a little heavier into the comedy or the drama in some cases in his movies as well. But the thing is, you can't take away what he what is on display in Drunken Master. And frankly, in terms of someone who gave his body... For the movies he made and for the entertainment of others, I don't think there's anyone who gave as much as Jackie Chan has. I'd have to D- agree. Doug, Doug, now I know um, his son 
like started to get into movies because I remember Invisible Target had his son in it. Do you know is his son still making movies or so did he I, bow I'm, out? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I know one of his sons. I don't know if it was the same one. I think he got busted for marijuana or something like that, and it became a big. I I, I don't know all of the details about it, but I know that it was controversial at the time. Um, but. I mean, there are a lot of young, great martial artists out there. They don't necessarily have to be tied to the Jackie Chan bloodline. But wouldn't it be cool to see Jackie Chan's son become, a, you know, rise up as a as a martial arts superstar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just it's kind of interested because I see. Yeah, like I said, I saw the one movie and I just kind of didn't keep up to see if he was still working or or what. Uh, those things where like, I'm dipping my toe in it because it's kind of like the natural thing that people think, oh, the next, the next of kin will follow in the footsteps. But <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> well, I think that's it. What All are we right. talking about well, next, Mike? All right. Well, we saved, I guess, the biggest gap between original and sequel for last, which would be, let's see, I think 35 years. 1982 and 2017. Wow. Now, I'll say going in, um, I kind of have like a natural skepticism when you don't get a sequel of a movie for that long, only because it's like really like they want to do it at this point. Why? And um, Blade Runner, pretty iconic movie. I, I think... I guess I would ask Venom and Iris the question because I I want to say more for when me and Doug were growing up, it seemed like Blade Runner was kind of uh, divisive only in the sense that I think a lot of people went into it thinking like you know it was going to be another like you know big action sci-fi you know crazy movie when it really was more like a neo noir like mystery sci-fi type movie. And I think some people didn't like it because they didn't feature the action that they thought would be there. But I have always loved Blade Runner. The sequel Blade Runner 2049 from 2017 was coming out. I was interested, you know, I was at least intrigued, like, well, what exactly are they going to do with this story uh, 35 years later? And uh, I, I plan on seeing it in the theater, didn't get around to it, and believe it or not, this was actually my first time watch, and I'm I'm blaming it solely on the running time, <laughs> because I, I saw the running time, and it was like, when the hell can I sit down for almost three hours uninterrupted and watch it, and uh, there was a few times I can remember almost watching it, and just, I couldn't do it at the time, so I'm like, okay, finally going to use this as an excuse to commit, watched it. And I ended up enjoying it, actually. Uh, I liked the way they kind of continued the story. Now, does anyone remember offhand uh, what what year, not what year did Blade Runner come out? That was 82. Do you remember what year it was supposedly supposed to take place in? Like how, the, movie starts, how uh, the movie starts in November of 2019. So a majority of the film takes place in early 2020. Okay, and then Blade Runner 2049, is that supposed to be the year 2049, I'm assuming? Exactly. Yeah, so tw- 29 years afterwards. Yep. So, yes, we kind of we get kind of like the continuation, uh, still largely, you know, 
similar setup. Uh, they have a Blade Runner taking out like the old outdated uh, replicants. And then there's a little more going involved with the story. Obviously, plays a smaller part, but I guess still significant to the overall story in this one. We have Ryan Gosling as the the new Blade Runner on the scene. Um, and I would say, you know, this is this is kind of similar in keeping with the sense that it's not so much like a over-the-top action movie. There are action sequences uh, that are built up to that I think deliver... But uh, it's not just like a straight action movie. So I would say, you know, if people saw Blade Runner and they're disappointed because it wasn't an action movie, well, they probably would feel the same about this. On the other hand, people who really like Blade Runner, like as myself, uh, when I saw this one, finally, I liked it. Uh, I thought they did a good job. I mean, about as good a job, I think, as you could with all these years going by and is the creativity and the the motivation to actually make a, you know, an interesting story still there. But, um, I am going to kick it to Venom first, Blade Runner 2049. What did you think of this one? Um, for those who don't know, uh, Mike and I were on a podcast called rad radio, the all ladies podcast uh, a couple of years ago. And we actually did our top five favorite eighties movies. And Mike, do you remember what my favorite movie of the entire decade is? Well, I'm going to take a guess at the yeah. reason you even brought that up. <laughs> Was it, it the color of money? Runner. <laughs> yeah, it clearly yeah. the color. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, uh, Blade Runner has been my absolute favorite movie of the 80s. Um, you know, I... Maybe not during the 80s, because obviously I was a little bit younger. I was one of those people that maybe wasn't as big a fan of the original Blade Runner when it first came out. Just like you were saying, not as much action, you know, because I, I was part of the Star Wars generation, you know, and this is what the year before Return of the Jedi. So I hear the word sci fi. Yeah, I think big, you know, action set pieces and everything else. So, yeah, admittedly, Blade Runner wasn't one that really jumped on my radar right away. I saw it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great. Well, that opinion changes greatly over the decades since then, whereas now I see the subtle brilliance of Blade Runner. I, I think it's Ridley Scott's best film. I know I get into a lot of arguments with that statement, but I don't care. It's it's an absolutely gorgeous film, a ridiculous soundtrack by Vangelis, um, some great editing. And despite the lack of action, I am riveted from beginning to end. There's not one moment of the original Blade Runner, even the final cut, which is over two hours, um, I, there's not a moment that I'm not completely riveted and absolutely love the film. So fast forward 35 years and I was, I was one of the people that was looking forward to this very much. And I actually did go to the theater to see it opening weekend. And I was pleasantly surprised. Um, this is a movie that has no right being as good as it is. I know it's not. How can I put it? It's not something that's universally loved necessarily, but I think in the Blade Runner camps, I think the hardcore Blade Runner fans, a lot of them kind of supported this film. You know, again, we get a great score. You know, we get a great uh, character study on a new Blade Runner as opposed to, you know, Officer Deckard from the first film. Uh, now we have Officer K or Blade Runner K, whatever his exact title was. But yeah, um, 
I love this movie right from the start, and it was mostly set design and score that absolutely, you know, got me. I know a lot of people aren't big fans of the kind of shrieking score that kind of that Christopher Nolan has kind of made famous over the last uh, decade or so. But I, for the most part, when utilized properly, I feel like they're brilliant, and I love this score. I love how jarring it is. I love how I'll be watching a, a fairly somber moment, and then suddenly a loud-ass screech will go across the uh, my sound bar, kind of waking me up almost, if you will. But yeah, I just... This is a movie that I've been championing for a long time. I, I really, really supported this right from the start. I, I And I hate Ryan Gosling, by the way. For anyone who doesn't know, I am not a Ryan Gosling fan, and I love him in this film. I actually, he, because to me, he seems like a Blade Runner, you know, kind of lifeless, doesn't have a smile on his face very often, blah, blah, blah. I feel like this was a very well cast role for uh, Gosling being a, you know, later model replicant in his own right and a blade runner. So, um, and, oh, and here's another person that I can't stand Jared Leto. I hate Jared Leto with a fiery passion Mm -hmm. and I still am okay with his role in this movie. Granted, I'm not going to say he did a great job. No, I'm not going to say that, but for what the role entailed, um, I, I still feel like his kind of drab delivery works. Um, you know, his drab, almost creepy style of del- of line delivery totally works for this role, at least in my opinion. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the return of Harrison Ford and for a short time, Sean Young as well. Um, I assume it's a uh, CGI de-aged Sean Young, but, you know, she does make an appearance. So kudos there. Um, obviously seeing the blade, the original Blade Runner again is great for those of us who were huge fans of the first one. I mean, the first time that we see Decker, you know, at the at the Treasure Island Casino, I, it just I remember the the the, the, uh, the theater cheered. I mean, just about everybody in the in the, in the sold out theater cheered as soon as he showed up. Very reminiscent of The Force Awakens, actually, but that's a story for another show. Um, so, yeah, for me, this movie works. It is a slow masterpiece, in my opinion. Yes, it is almost three hours long. Yes, I would never recommend it to someone who either doesn't like slow burns or doesn't have the patience to sit down for this long. But I firmly love this film. Always have. I own the 4K Blu-ray, bought it right away. It looks stunning on my you know, 4K Toshiba, and it's an absolute favorite of mine. Even, you know... Even if I'm not really paying attention to it, it's one of those background movies that I can watch because almost every frame in this film is a work of art. I just, you know, the, the way that they use the kind of cyberpunk style that, you know, was was uh, created in the original Blade Runner. But how in this one, it's so much brighter, more colorful. You could see how society has advanced since the days of Blade Runner's 2019 anyway. Um, yeah, uh, again, this is going to be a movie that I can say great things about for hours. Um, I know I'm in the minority on this one. I know this isn't a movie that set the world on fire by any stretch, but for whatever it's worth for this hardcore Blade Runner fan, for, in my opinion, this was a worthy sequel. I was very happy with it. And now let's put the franchise to bed, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's swing it over to Iris next, Blade Runner 2049. Okay, so um, Venom and I must be in the minority. 
because I too feel the same way about this. <laughs> when Blade <laughs> Runner, minorities though too. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so we're minority minority. Um. <laughs> so yeah, this movie, uh, well, kind of like how you were saying that I'm, you know, um, first Blade Runner comes out and. For me, I think it was perfect because I was, I, I pretty much grew up watching, you know, Humphrey Bogart and all of the, you know, Maltese Falcon and just mm. my camera and all, you just all of that stuff, you know, the, the, the noir detective, the gallon trouble. So when I saw it up on the screen in a cyberpunk world, I immediately fell in love with the movie. And like you said, the score was great and everything. So then comes this one. And I was a little scared to watch this movie because I didn't want it to break that beautiful, nostalgic memory I had of the other. I, I was just like, man, I don't know. I don't know. But when I did watch it, I did get to watch it in, in the movie theater. I walked away with the biggest smile on my face because it did not mess with that. And it kind of tied everything up very nicely for me too. Uh, you know, at the beginning I was kind of a little iffy because, you know, you've got a replicant chasing replicants. I mean, aren't the replicants <laughs> the problem, but um, as the movie progresses and you're starting to see what's going on and those red herrings it throws at you, right? You know, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Who could K be? Is it K? Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. And then Deckard, of course, you know, shows up. Same thing. Yes, everybody cheered. And, you know, <laughs> when you mentioned it, I went immediately to, yeah, just kind of like when The Force Awakens, because we did there, <laughs> too. <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, this movie really, really surprised me when I watched it. And I did enjoy it. Ryan Gosling, he's an okay guy. Really don't care for him either. I mean, I, he's he's pretty to look at. I'll say that much. <laughs> but I, I I liked how he plays his character. And, again, the, there's just so much that a lot of thought went into this, I have to say. Because what they were trying to do was just tie it up with a nice little bow. And and there you go. Here it is, guys. Here it is for the fans. And for the people that haven't seen Blade Runner, here's a story that you can relate. Which I thought was kind of, it was very good. It, it gave it that sci-fi feel. It, it Very much sci-fi. And, of course, cyberpunk. You know, everybody was, was so stoked about uh, actually being able to play cyberpunk, something like this. And then this came out also, which I think kind of stoked the fires there a little bit too. But um, yeah, I enjoyed this movie so much that uh, I too have the Blu-ray and it is 4k. I went ahead and got that. <laughs> so then I'm, you and I come from the same, same uh, a cast buddy. Cause you know, I, I'm right there with you. This movie was great. Uh, it was fun to see all the characters. Um, Gaff, you know, almost also come, it comes back in this too. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it was nice to see. And I don't know. Um, I love the ending. The ending surprised me a lot because I did not expect it to end the way that it did. Mm -hmm. I was expecting, 
uh, kind of like the roles to be turned around, you know, the, sure. the other person that whatever, you know, what happens at the end was going to be the other person. But, um, yeah, it was a good movie. And um, I'm glad I got to um, this is, I think, the third time I watch it. So, yes, very enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. All right. That leaves Doug Chili, Blade Runner 2049. Well, I love the original Blade Runner. Uh, it seems like I'm in good company there. Uh, and this was my first time watching Blade Runner 2049. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because when the movie came out, even though I I don't think we should talk about this movie like it's some uh, underloved gem. This is actually by far the most critically loved movie that we're talking about today. Uh, it is. It still has an eight, eight out of ten an IMDb, I think it's in the top 250 list. I mean, this is a movie that's very well regarded, even though it didn't do very well at the box office. But the fucking discourse after this movie came out got poisonous very, very quickly, as any movie with this much anticipation, it probably would. And I wanted to distance myself from that before I saw it. So this, I was so glad that someone chose this movie. I was actually just about to watch it. And then, and then when it was chosen for this, I was like, great, now I have an excuse, a double excuse. I'll go back to watch Blade Runner, which was a joy, and I'll watch this. And uh, and so I came at it with, thankfully, a little bit removed from some of that discourse. A lot there for those who who didn't go through it. There were a lot of accusations of misogyny regarding this movie. Uh, there were, and and I think that there's an interpretation of this movie that makes that very valid. I actually think it's the completely other direction that the lack of autonomy for women uh, in this movie, and particularly with the end of character in this is very much a commentary on uh on the lack of autonomy that women have in a society especially and, and presented in the original film as well and it's very consistent with that and it's supposed to be a commentary on that but anyway aside from that this movie's fucking great it really is really really good it is an impossible movie there's no way that this movie should fit so well with the original and there's no way that they should Take the the thing that people are so obsessed with regarding the the original, whether uh, Deckard is a uh, replicant, and manage to keep that mystery going through this and make it still very satisfying, but also completely besides the point that it doesn't matter anymore. I also love that they introduced that the Ryan Gosling character, he's a replicant right from the very beginning. We know he is. That's not even a question. But then there's another question about him that is just as intriguing that the movie starts uh, interrogating and what it what it really is able to echo is the um, the feeling of the Rucker Howard character from Blade Runner. What makes him so interesting? I mean, he's the highlight to me of the original film that echoes throughout this movie. The idea of of what makes a replicant, you know, artificial and how much their humanity is tied in with um, you know the, these kind of creators, as Jerry mentioned, the Jared Leto character who, again. He's just the worst. He's just the worst actor. <laughs> He's, I hate seeing him. But if if you're going to cast him as uh, someone who thinks of himself as a godlike being, then I guess it's at least semi-appropriate because he obviously thinks of himself that way anyway. I think this movie is great. I love that it's so slow. It's such a it's such a non-commercial decision to make this a three-hour movie which just lingers on the visuals. And uh, and it, it, it paid the price for it. I think a lot of the 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 belief is that this movie would have been a lot more financially successful if they could have shown it more times during a day, but its length actually worked against it in regards to it. But uh, I like Denis Villeneuve. I don't love all of his films, but this is the kind of movie 
that is such a unbelievable success that it makes me think, you know what, Dune could be good. It could be really, really good, it, it, right? It, it, which is just going to be all the more crushing when it ends up not being potentially, right? But, but no, Blade Runner 2049, it is actually a must-watch. It is the fact that you could make a really strong case for it to, as being as good as the original Blade Runner, and I've heard this many times over the last couple of weeks, maybe even better, is an unbelievable accomplishment for mainstream, big-budget Hollywood cinema. Yeah, this is a... This is one of those once-in-a-lifetime type sequels that you probably won't ever see again, particularly because the fact that it didn't do well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you think yeah, that was an interesting... Because they kind of stayed true to the style of the original one. Yeah, there's a point that could be made that, like, uh, to be financially more successful, it's like, oh, let's just ramp it up and make it like a cheaper action movie, you know, just to try to draw the crowds in and spark more interest um, because I think there was probably interest from like you know the diehard fan or just you know the bigger fans of Blade Runner, but because the sequel is coming out so many years later, it, there I I, I kind of had that question going into it even at the time when um, they had just announced it, like well how how are they going to do this one? Are they going to stay true to kind of what made the original Blade Runner that type of movie? And for the most part, I, I felt they kind of stuck to that style. A film which is cool i mean i like the decision obviously maybe the studios are mad because the the money didn't make so much in the theater but it's still a better movie for it i think it's a love fest man a lot of this episode has been a love fest which is very interesting considering i imagine that deep down all of us are pretty hesitant when it comes to sequels to beloved movies but uh, but uh, mm-hmm. you know well we'll get to what the lesson is in just a moment but I feel pretty positive about all these films. Yeah, and I'm also going to say you know it was bound to happen, and I think if I if I count all all the way back to like original cast of this with the episodes we've done since Mr. Venom joined. I would say we're probably close to the 50 episode mark, if not just a little bit under or over. And finally, I picked a movie everyone liked. So um, it, it was it was bound about to happen. Damn time, and, dude! Uh, about damn time. Yeah, you got one. I can I can now say that uh, positive response to a movie I chose. What podcast is this? Because that doesn't usually happen on Game of Thrones. It only took you 50 episodes. Good job. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, all right. Well, before we get out of here, yes, we need to uh, hear the lesson from this episode. So, Doug, hopefully you got one for us. What did we learn on this episode? We learned that it's absolutely fine to do a sequel to a beloved movie. You just have to wait minimum 15 years and then just go to town because that's how you get a great sequel. <laughs> Agreed. Say good words. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I guess this case, the longer the better even. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's going to do it for our return episode of Theme Warriors. But before we get out of here, man. So much time has gone by. I'm sure not only do people have shows to tell us about, but they might be completely different shows than they had uh, to tell us about last time. So I will kick it to Doug first, because I know you have a lot of stuff going on now. So I'm interested to hear about everyone else 
that listens should be too. So what exactly are you up to today? Well, uh, since the uh, most recent episode of Theme Warriors, Eric Roberts is the fucking man came to an end. And uh, we have launched, uh, me and my co-host Liam O'Donnell, a podcast called Cinema Smorgasbord, which is actually an umbrella podcast, which underneath it has a bunch of other podcasts that take a similar form to Eric Roberts is the fucking man, where we follow a performer or a director and go through their careers in different ways. This includes a podcast devoted to uh, artists as, as diverse as Carol Kane. We have a show called praising Kane. Uh, we have the Jackie Chan podcast. We do our own stunts. We have a podcast devoted to the Filipino Peter Laurie, Vic Diaz. Uh, we have how do you do fellow kids, which is a podcast devoted to Steve Buscemi. And just recently we launched Jodorowsky, a podcast devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky's film. You can check all of those out at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. No Budget Nightmares, my podcast about micro-budget and shot-on video cinema. It's uh, on currently a lengthy hiatus because of the pandemic. Hopefully that's going to be coming back with a vengeance in 2021. Uh, But if you want to check out what I'm up to, uh, what other podcasts I'm going to be guesting on, you can always follow me on Twitter. That's Doug underscore Tilly, T-I-L-L-E-Y. All right. Uh, Iris, what are you up to these days? Well, um, Mike, Mark, and I are still doing BBNBC, and you can find us on exploitationfilms.com. We recorded uh, Food of the Gods last night, and everybody really, really loved it. And then I um, am also with Gary and Suzanne on the Cinema Beef podcast. Uh, We recorded the Valentine's one where everybody just uh, showed hate to uh, Jason and Amy. And, uh, <laughs> God, I hate that. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll be recording Tuesday. Uh, and it's basically, our theme is used cars. And then on Monday, I will be guesting on a true crime podcast. Ooh. And um, that will be We Saw the Devil at WeSawTheDevil.com. And basically, we will be discussing the Elisa Lam, um, the film, the documentary that just came on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, the girls were the the people who did the uh, documentary had listened to the podcast. We saw the devil uh, because they had done a interview there. And the guys of the documentary liked it so much that they were included in the documentary. So what we're going to do is we're going to rediscuss just a little bit of the Lisa Lamb, but on a more scientific bent. And I will be, um, we will be going over the autopsy and stuff, and I will be there as the capacity of a former autopsy technician. So that's going to be fun. Well, so you get to lend your expertise in other ways. Too. Yeah, that's going to be lots of fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. All right, Venom. I'm sure some of the stuff that you're going to be listening off is familiar, but uh, in case for the listeners that aren't crossover from, to our other shows, what do you got? All right, so as far as the stuff that Mike and I do together, our main show is called No More Room in Hell. We have 29 fun-filled episodes available, or 28 actually fun-filled episodes available as we speak. Um, Our latest episode, we looked at Finnish horror. Yes, that is uh, horror films from the great land of Finland. Um, We looked at 1952's The White Reindeer and 2008's Sauna. 
And then on the side cast for that show, oh, by the way, that show is Michael, myself, and Derek B., who's also from the Cinema Attack podcast. Uh, that show is available on the Dark Discussions podcast network. The side show for No More Room in Hell is called Fresh Cuts. That's where Michael and myself, with a varying uh, array of co-hosts that will join us from week to week, we discuss the newest films that are out in the genre. Our latest episode was for St. Maud, the, the A24 religious horror film that's been highly anticipated since 2019, actually, because of all its delays. But we finally got an American release last week, and we went ahead and reviewed that. That is also on the Dark Discussions podcast network, so check that out. That is called Fresh Cuts. And then for myself, um, one of my other shows is called In the Mic of Madness. I do that show with the lovely Rebecca Reinhardt, who is kind of a jack-of-all-trades in the indie horror community. She's a director, a writer, a producer, an actress. She can cater. She can light. She can do sound. Yes, she's a jack-of-all-trades. Um, she has her hands in over a dozen different um, indie horror films that are in production right now. So look up Rebecca and our other co-host on that show is Brad Thornton uh, from this from uh, I believe he's from the Cemetery Gates podcast. So check that out in the Mike of Madness is available on the prescribed films podcast network. Um, I have a movie commentary podcast uh, that's called It's Not Horror, OK, which, of course, by its title, you can tell we do not do horror films, but we do tend to try to do some horror adjacent stuff every now and again, action movies, martial arts, things like that. That is also on the Dark Discussions podcast network. On our latest episode, we took a look at 1981's Heavy Metal uh, the animated classic that actually has a very horror-filled segment in involving zombies, but yeah, we broke the rules a little bit. No big deal for that one. And um, the last one on my agenda is going to be uh, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space. Yes, um, anyone who knows what kaiju are, of course, those are giant Japanese monsters. Not always Japanese, but, you know, obviously Godzilla, Gamera, they're going to be the more prominent examples of the kaiju films. We are up to episode, I believe, 23 on that show. And our next episode, we're going to be looking at Gamera versus Baragon um, and continuing our retrospective of the original Ultraman series. I have um, I have a recent guest spot that, that Mike and I actually both have a recent guest spot on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror podcast where we looked at a couple of kind of 80s technological based horror, uh, Terror Vision and the video Dead. And then I have one more guest spot lined up coming up. I'm going to be on the Cut to the Chase podcast. They are finishing up their February which um, was their Alfred Hitchcock month where they basically did an Alfred Hitchcock movie every week. I will be closing out that series next weekend with Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, which is one of my favorite. It's probably my second favorite Hitchcock movie next to o Psycho. So, yeah, check out that. They, I believe they are also on the Dark Discussions podcast network. And I'm sorry to have taken up so much of your time. That's all from me, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> all right well venom covered uh my main shows as well so i don't need to repeat those just a couple guest uh appearances i was on a recent cinema beef where we uh covered the mechanic and the professional or leon the professional depending on what version you saw but i would highly recommend the uncut international 
version. Um, and then uh, my other, I would call it semi-regular show because we don't really have um, a set schedule. It's just kind of when we can get together to do it. We, me and Gary Hill and Suzanne, along with various guests, uh, do Burning for Springwood, which we're going through the entire Freddy's Nightmares series kind of uh We'll throw back to my evil episodes days with some TV horror in there. So that just kind of, I think we have, we're three quarters of the way through season one. So there's plenty of episodes out there to listen to. If you have any interest at all in hearing about Freddy's nightmares episodes. Um, but other than that, that takes care of myself and looks like we are all done plugging our stuff for this episode. So that means it's officially time to say goodbye. I would say, you know, uh, the plan for as far as I know, or as far as we know, we're going to try to keep back with our old schedule of monthly. Uh, we got fortunate with this one. We came up with a date and we were all able to, uh, make it work so it didn't get pushed back you know that's a reality of podcasting especially all of us you know we're getting older life takes us away from this stuff so uh plan on here in the next episode sometime in march and hopefully we can make it happen we definitely that year and a half or whatever how long it was hiatus isn't something we want to happen again so uh thank you everyone for listening um hopefully um, if you were a fan of the show before you, you find this one, we definitely will be plugging it around. So, and any new listeners, uh, if you like what you hear, look for it to come out once a month. So, with that, everybody, it's time to say bye to listeners. Bye bye. Adios. Peace. <laughs>